So now we're going to dive in. I'm going to read verses uh, 1 through 6 in Isaiah 49, but we're going to go through the whole chapter. And the title of the message today is, You Are Not Forgotten. You Are Not Forgotten. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 6. The word of the Lord says this, Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples from afar. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother. He named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of His hand, He hid me. He made me a polished arrow. In His quiver, He hid me away. And He said to me, You are my servant Israel, in whom I will be glorified. But I said, I've labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. Yet surely my right is with the Lord and my recompense with my God. And now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant, to bring Jacob back to Him, and that Israel might be gathered to Him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my strength. He says this, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Let's pray. Father, right now we come because we trust your promises. Your word, which we have just heard from, It will not return empty. We trust that it will go out and whether perceived or not, it will begin to chisel away at our wayward affections. It will begin to chisel away at our hearts that we might turn away from the debilitating slavery of sin. And that we might cast our whole lives upon the beautiful, glorious Christ who sets free sinners by faith alone. In this moment, I pray that you would be a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. And that we might hide your word in our hearts. That we might not sin against you. And I pray, God, that you would especially draw near to those who feel rejected, alone, condemned, defeated. And I pray that Your Word, Your mercy in this moment would wash them and make springs of living water and life spring up out of their hearts that they might know this beautiful truth. They are not forgotten. And they will not be forgotten. So Father, right now, in the quietness of this moment, would you speak to us? And we pray this for Jesus' sake. Amen. In my own life, I, um, I'm needy, like we all are. I need people to look into my life. I need to 
hear words of others about my life so that I look more like Jesus and I find joy from their relationship with God and so that I can also be sharpened when I'm wayward or when I'm not honed in on Christ like I should. And so I meet with a, a man. This man will remain nameless because he also serves overseas in, the, in an area that is fairly hostile to the gospel. But I meet with this man for every four to six weeks via Skype and he looks at my ugly mug and I look at his and we just get to talk to one another. And it's a relationship where everything's on the table and he can ask anything of my life and he allows me into his life in the same way. And so we begin to talk and one time when we were talking he shared about a story of a man. He lives in Central Asia. That narrows it down only a little. But a man who in Central Asia at age 45 had grown up and lived as a Muslim all his life and yet bowed the knee to Jesus Christ and his life was changed. The story is remarkable and it filled my heart with such joy. And I just asked him, what were some of the signs that you saw that this man's heart was being pulled away from sin and false gods to the one true living Jesus Christ? And he sent me this list, and so I wanted to share them with you. What were some signs that God had invaded this man's life halfway across the globe? First one he said, the man learned to say he was sorry. He said some guests came to their gathering, a small gathering of people, and they were talking over the Bible together. And this man was visiting, and he interrupted right in the middle of the conversation about the Bible, and he began to say he wanted to share how God was changing his life. He said for 45 years, he would have called himself an angry man. He would yell regularly at his daughter, and he said, but now, for the first time ever, he said he was sorry to her. And he said his daughter was shocked, caught off guard. That his dad, her daddy would say, I'm sorry. Another sign was he was reading through the book of Genesis. First time he had read through or read parts of the Bible. And as he was reading the book of Genesis, he found, found himself colliding with Genesis chapter 50. So he'd already read that Adam and Eve, they blew it. They were supposed to live in obedience and they blew it all together. And so there is tragedy all over the rest of the Bible. Only the ray of hope of Jesus Christ was the only thing that was there. And yet he finds in Genesis 50 a man named Joseph. And Joseph was one who through all kinds of trial remained obedient. And he made the connection. He says what Adam could not be, Joseph was. And how did he get that kind of insight? When you were reading the Bible and all of a sudden it made no sense to all of a sudden, aha, I understand something. The Spirit of God at work. He began to talk about also how they were reading through the book of 1 Peter together as a group. And he had just come off of a week where his family, finding out that he has now proclaiming that Jesus Christ is his only hope and that Jesus has saved him from his sins, he proclaimed that to his family and his family says, you have no inheritance with us anymore. And even his sisters were the most adamant to say, you've lost your inheritance. And that very week, reading through 1 Peter, they read these verses in 1 Peter chapter 1, which says... 
that he has an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for him by God's power. And he was encouraged that there's no inheritance that can be taken away that really matters. And finally, he described himself as a lonely man. He said he would sit alone in the park often by himself. But now, once Jesus has come into his life, he intentionally engages others with this message about Christ and his love. Halfway around the globe, God takes the gospel message and drives it into the heart. And a man is awakened and loves what he didn't love and gives his life in ways that he would not have given his life before. He sees Jesus and he loves him. God's message of love is not just for us in this room. It is a message that is too small to stay quarantined to the Jews, too small to stay quarantined to Raleigh, too small to stay quarantined to America. This is a gospel that must go to the ends of the earth because God's glory is at the center of this message that God is the most glorious being in the universe It is to Him that we give our lives to, and that is the message we take. And it's the book of Isaiah, as we dive into chapter 49, that paints this picture of Jesus, who will not settle for His good news to stay small. It must go to the ends of the earth. So, we want to hear about in Isaiah 49 these three things. That God has sent His Son as the servant, and I use the servant specifically because that's the way this passage will speak of it. God sent His Son as the servant. We know Him as Jesus Christ for three reasons. One, for His namesake. Two, for all the peoples. And three, so that you will not be forgotten. So let's dive into the first part here. Verses 1 to 4, I want us to look at that God sent His Son as the servant for His namesake. Now, last week, we spent some time in Isaiah 48. If this you weren't with us, that's fine. I'm going to bridge the connection. We're going to move forward. But in Isaiah 48, we look at verse 20. And verse 20 helps us to understand some of the historical context for where we find ourselves. And it says in verse 20, Go out from Babylon, flee from Chaldea, declare this with a shout of joy and proclaim it, send it out to the ends of the earth, say, the Lord has redeemed His servant Jacob. What does that mean? Well, God's people were the people of Israel. He chose a people for His name so that they would stand in contrast to the nations. When God loves this people, there is blessing and there is promise and they have a land and they're thriving. And as you look at the nations, they would look on this people and they would long for that kind of God who provides. But now something has happened. Something has happened and it's that God's very people rebelled against God. They say, I would rather bow my knee to a false God that I can make and touch than to worship you. The Bible describes that as forgetting God. They forgot God. They didn't remember Him. And they gave themselves to materials, to things, to possessions. They gave themselves to people. Saying that people were going to fill up what they really needed. 
And so, year after year after year after year after year, Israel continued to rebel against God. And so God finally said, you will be punished for this. For sin cannot go unpunished. You must be punished. And so you will be sent away in exile to the place we just read about in verse 20. You'll be sent away to Babylon. And Babylon was going to be an instrument in the hands of God to bring discipline upon Israel. And if they submitted to that discipline and bowed their knee to God, they would find themselves also, not only God is one who disciplines and refines, but God who also redeems, restores, buys back out of slavery, and delivers them back to their land. You following? They rebelled, they were removed. Right as they were about to be removed, the prophet Jeremiah speaks in. He tells the king of what was Judah at that time, King Zedekiah, that he says, if you don't submit to God's right discipline of you through the hand of Babylon, if you don't start, stop fighting against Babylon and just surrender, it will go worse for you. And they said, here's what the king said. He said, well, if I surrender, I will look like a weak king. I will look bad in the eyes of these people. So rather than listen to the word of God, I'm going to fear man and I'm going to keep fighting against Babylon. So rather than a quiet surrender with Jerusalem intact, they continue to fight against Babylon and what happens is Babylon wipes them off the face of the planet. He goes in, crushes Jerusalem. The temple is crushed. The walls of Jerusalem fall down and all the artifacts out of the temple are taken and everything's whisked away to Babylon and they are there for years. They did not listen out of fear of man. And they find themselves in Babylon. And now as we looked at verse 20, now what's happening is Isaiah was a prophet who prophesied prior to them going away to Babylon. Now we find themselves, they've been in Babylon for years, and God's promises of deliverance for the faithful comes to pass. And he brings a man named Cyrus. He is king of Persia. And Persia comes in and decimates Babylon. And King Cyrus is now the instrument in God's hands. You see, he's just moving kings around by his own power. Trust him with your life. He takes King Cyrus. He destroys Babylon because they were against God's people. They too were not bowing the knee to God. Cyrus was raised up. And with political dominance and power, he put away Babylon, but he also said, Israel, I'm going to send you back to Jerusalem so that you can rebuild your temple and rebuild your city. And that's where we find ourselves in verse 20 of chapter 48. King Cyrus is now in power, and they have the, declare, the, the decree to leave. To leave Babylon. So he says, go out from Babylon and flee and declare this with a shout of joy. You've been enslaved here for years. Declare with a shout of joy that you're going to be released, set free from captivity. For God has bought back, redeemed, set free. That's the word that's used in verse 20. He has set free his servant, Jacob, or his servant, Israel. So, this leads us into chapter 49. Now, what's interesting is chapter 48, we have no idea who the speaker is. It's just an unidentified author as we're plugging through. 
And we still don't know who the speaker is when we dive into chapter 49, verse 1. It says, listen to me. Who's the me? We don't really know yet. So, take heart. You didn't miss it. We're going to figure it out as we go. Who's the me? Well, he lets us in a little bit. He lets us in a little bit as we look into these verses. Chapter 49, verses 1 to 4 says this, Listen to me, O coastlands, and pay attention. Give attention, you peoples from afar. This is poetry, and he's just repeating himself. So, except when he repeats himself, the second line explains a little more or gives greater clarity and definition. Listen, O coastlands, who are you? Well, listen means pay attention, you peoples from afar. You see how it's a further defining, a further clarifying. This is poetry, and that's what we're looking at here. The Lord called me from the womb. From the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword in the shadow of his hand. Who is this me? I don't know who it is. Well, he tells us. Look at verse 3. And he said to me, you are my servant, Israel. Now, this is interesting. Because this is what's known as the second out of four servant songs. Isaiah 42 was the first poem about the servant. And this is the second. You'll see another next week in chapter 50, and you'll see the fourth in the, some of the most famous Old Testament verses, Isaiah 52 through 53, where it talks about a, a, surf, a suffering servant. Easy for me to say. A suffering servant who will suffer on behalf of God's people. So, when he mentions servant, it's not out of a vacuum. He's already mentioned that there's this individual coming to redeem God's people who will be filled with the Spirit of God and set free Israel. But what's weird in this passage is that the servant gets the name Israel. Servant is going to set free Israel, but he's called Israel. It makes me scratch my head. Why is this? Well, I want you to look down in... Verse 5, and now the Lord says, He who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him, and that Israel might be gathered to him. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord, and my God has become my recompense. This servant called Israel is going to redeem Israel. So let's follow it. An individual who will come out of Israel, but yet stands distinct of Israel is going to be used by God to deliver God's people. But he gets the name of Israel for one specific reason. Because he is who the people of Israel could not be. He's a representative of the people. They were rebellious, he obeyed. They would not worship, he was in perfect submission to the Father. They were a people who would forget God, this servant would be a person who always did what God required. So there's an individual talked about here in Isaiah 49 who would be who God's people, Israel, could not be. And therefore, this servant was to be their sole hope because they had to have somebody do what they couldn't do. They were rebellious. 
against God's ways. And they would be redeemed through a servant. And so, we know this individual servant who stands in the place of Israel, who is the true Israel, we know Him as Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did what we could not do. He died a death that we deserved. He was raised from the dead to show that He has power to make rebellious people new. So, reading it in light of that, let's go back. Verse 1. The Lord called me, this servant, from, from the womb. From the body of my mother, He named my name. I had a purpose from the beginning. It was my purpose of restoration. And it says in verse 2, He made my mouth like a sharp sword. It's a weird way to talk, isn't it? My mouth like a sword. What, what is that? Well, He's setting the servant who is going to redeem God's people in contrast to Cyrus. How did Cyrus make triumph over what was happening? He did it through political power, right? Through the domination of a sword in the hand. This one is going to come. And how will he triumph? He will triumph as a servant and he will have a sword in his mouth. Meaning, he will triumph through words. His very words will be what creates triumph and victory for the people of God. And, this very verse is quoted in the book of Revelation. Which is why I've said over and over that if you want to understand the book of Revelation, you need to understand your Old Testament. Because when Jesus is described as the one who has the sword in his mouth, the two-edged sword in his mouth, the author of Revelation, John, is reading his Bible. He's reading the book of Isaiah. That's Jesus. And so to understand, we, we see that this is how the New Testament authors read their Bible, read the Old Testament as well. And so this is Jesus, and it says in verse 2, In the shadow of His hand He has hid me, He has made me a polished arrow in His quiver, He has hid me away. That means He made me secure, and the servant will be shot out according to the purposes of God, and He will accomplish, it will be dead bullseye, He will accomplish everything that God wants Him to accomplish. And then, look at verse 3, And He said to me, You are My servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. The purpose of the servant was to live for the glory of the one who was sending him out. To live for the glory of God. And I don't know if you have this footnote. I have this footnote in my Bible. The word, I will be glorified, is I will be used to display his beauty. Now there's a mission statement right there. I exist to display the beauty of my God. That's why the servant existed, and that's why I exist. To display the beauty of my God. How did Jesus do that? He was perfect in every way without sin. Even when He was tempted, He resisted temptation. He loved to the point of death, even death on a cross, all so that His Father would get glory and that people would live for the glory of God's name. Jesus was so consumed and so soaked in, I exist to display the beauty of God. He said this when He taught His disciples how to pray. Remember that? He teaches His disciples how to pray, Matthew chapter 6. Here's how you pray. Our Father, who is in heaven, what's the next line? 
Hallowed be your name. We struggle to talk like that, right? Hallowed, hallowed, we don't talk that way. What does that mean? It means that the ultimate anchor of my soul is that God, your name is praised with my life. It is, I want to begin in everything that I ask of you in prayer. I want it to be so that you shine forth as beautiful and all-sufficient and as the one that supplies all of my needs. I want you to be exalted and get the praise. So that's how I want to pray. Our Father who is in heaven, may your name be hallowed. May your name be praised to the ends of the earth. May I exist as a beacon to show off your beauty. And friends, we were crafted to live for Christ's fame. We were crafted to show Him off. I remember going to school and in music class, especially when I was younger, they had those little finger symbols. You remember those bad boys? You'd put them on these two and it just felt like such a ripoff. You volunteer to play the symbols, and all you got were these things sticking on your fingers. And you know, ching, ching, ching. It's like, really? I was expecting these big old things. You just, you know, slam it. Of course, they're wise. You're not going to give an elementary school symbols, a school student anyway. So anyway, that's what we were doing. Ching, ching, ching. And isn't it interesting? I began to think about those this week. Many arguments, many strifes in the human heart is because we are upset that we are not getting what we are due. We're upset because we're not getting what we deserve. And trust me, we don't want what we deserve. We don't want what we are due. We are due condemnation and hell and wrath and fury and judgment and execution and death because we are sinners. We are rebels and we are clamoring for our glory and settling for the pleasure of the two tiny symbols of human praise. When we were crafted to live our lives for the massive gong-like clangs of triple forte smacking these things together that God would be praised through our lives. We are drinking through little thimbles when we were created to drink from a well that never runs dry. Desiring that we would get praise or thinking that we can meet our needs apart from living for the beauty of God. And the servant says, I live and exist to display the beauty of God. And all those who trust in the servant are to make that their aim as well. We exist for the name of God. We are first crafted to be worshipers. To bow our knee to God and to say, God, I want to experience you. I want to know you. I want to dwell with you here in this moment. And my prayer has been, friends, that God would protect this passage from just being academic. There's a lot of things that maybe you have not thought about. And so you can get your mind stimulated. But let's make crystal clear why your mind needs to be stimulated. You need to see that God is bigger than you are and that you were created to bow your heart soul and life to God himself and when you bow it to anything else it will be like the small clang of these finger symbols rather than the full delight of being able to smack together what you really wanted to 
God has created you for more. And you're a worshiper. And all of this information is so that you might know God and experience Him. And when you experience Him, you're connected to Jesus. And then His mission becomes your mission. And that's what we see in this text. And so friends, before we move on, God sent His Son for His namesake. And I just pray that in this moment, if He is stirring in your heart, as He often does, and I know He's doing in some, that there would be something in the heart right now that says, this is the area. This is the area where I need to repent. And I need to say, God, I want all of you to have all of me. I don't want the glory anymore. I want you to get it. I want you to get it. I'm tired of fighting for my own glory. I want you to get it. And so in this moment, whether you just need to jot it down on your phone, whether you need to write it down in your journal, God wants a relationship with you as a worshiper. That you might live like Jesus lived. To display His beauty to the ends of the earth. Now, not only did God send His Son for His namesake, for His glory, He also did it for all the peoples. And this is what we begin to see here. In verse 4, as we finish up that first point, transitioning into the second, Jesus the servant, He says, But I said, I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing. You can imagine, there is this sense of, I lived perfectly for the glory of God, and it got me killed. Right? It's where he's in the garden and he's praying, Father, if there's any other way, would you deliver me from this moment? It could seem as if the labors and his death were in vain because the very people he died for ended up killing him. But he knows that's not the case. That's why the next phrase comes. Yet surely, although it seems to have been in vain by all external sights, yet surely my right is with the Lord. And my recompense with my God. He'll bring justice. He'll make it right. I know He will. And now the Lord says in verse 5, He who formed me from the womb to be His servant to bring Jacob back to Him that Israel might be gathered. Go to verse 6. He says, It's too light a thing that you should be my servant to just raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel, I'm going to do something greater beyond just that. Beyond just taking Israel out of captivity in Babylon and delivering them back to their land, my glory is bigger. It can't be just contained by the ethnic people of Israel who trust in me. It's got to go beyond. And Jesus is going to be the servant. The servant is going to be, what does it say in verse 6? I will make you as a light to the nations that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. Now this very passage is quoted in Acts 13. In Acts chapter 13, Paul and Barnabas are seen to be quoting Isaiah 49. And Paul and Barnabas, it says in Acts 13, 46-49, Paul and Barnabas, it says, speak out loudly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. 
Who's the first to you? It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to the Jews. For salvation was to come to the Jews first. But, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, since you rebelled against me and since the gospel went out and you said, I don't want it, I'm not going to trust in Jesus with my life, since you thrust it aside, behold, we are turning to the nations. We are turning to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. And now he begins to quote Isaiah 49. For so the Lord has commanded us. Now that should be shocking. In Isaiah 49, the command is to the servant. We know him as Jesus. The command is to the servant to be a light to the nations. But here, Paul and Barnabas are saying, the command is to us. Who is it to? To Jesus or to us? Yes. Because anyone who trusts in Jesus is said to be found, when you read this, pass, when you read this phrase in the New Testament, it is meant to be a phrase of union. The phrase is, in Christ. I in Christ. When you trust in Jesus, you are said to be in Christ. You are in His life. He is, you're in the family together. And therefore, the mission of the servant is the mission of all of His people. So Paul and Barnabas are able to say, because it was Jesus' mission, and now because I'm in Jesus by faith, it's now my mission too. To take the gospel not just to the Jews, but to the nations. And so he quotes our passage. And then listen, verse 48 he says of Acts 13, And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing. That this was not just a gospel message for the Jewish people, it was a message for them as well. And they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many were appointed to eternal life, they believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. This gospel message is a message that must be taken beyond just the Jews. It says here that it's too light a thing. It's too small a thing. The image that came to my mind was a deflated balloon. Kids only enjoy deflated balloons to the degree that they can inflate them, right? That's the fun part. Once you inflate them, you can either, if they've got helium in them, you watch them float away. If they, you inflate them, you can take them and you can like have wars with them, you know, smack each other in the head. That's always fun. Don't recommend that, kids. You can play like volleyball with them, you know. Balloons are fun when they're inflated. Have you ever tried to take a deflated one and play with it? It's not very fun. Here's what he's saying. It's too small a picture of God's mercy. And many times we view God's mercy like this deflated balloon. Like it's, it's unable to do very much. He says it's too small a thing for it just to be poured out upon a million plus Jews. It's too small. I must allow my mercy to go global through my servant. It must reach to the ends of the earth. So how does this matter in our hearts? 
What does this mean for our hearts? Is that mercy is bigger than we think it is. His ability to save and rescue and have compassion on us miserable people, it's bigger than we think it is. We narrow it down. When we look at our own lives, we question whether God's mercy is big enough to to meet our needs or to help us in our affliction. It's the view of a deflated balloon. This passage is meant to broaden and blow up God's mercy picture. That it's global in its scope. And therefore, if it can move in such a degree that a person in Central Asia can hear the gospel and their heart is broken and changed and they're a part of a church there, don't you think His mercy is strong enough for you? It's meant to broaden the picture of God's global mercy. It's too light a thing. We must make it not small, but blow it up by following the mission of our Savior Jesus. Not only is mercy global, but mercy is also extended as the power of God. That God's gospel message is a message of of mercy and it's a message of power. It can save people. But here's the breakdown. We know that that message can save, but is it saving? We many times render this gospel message more neutered than it really is. Here, the servant is taking the gospel and he will be a light to the nation, salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul quotes it, says, that's my mission. And when I proclaimed it, many people were coming to faith. Is that something that only happened back then? No. God is at work right now extending His mercy. The fact that you're here, don't miss your own story as a story of mercy in the here and now. But I also want to connect you to something else. A story that I want you to look at from an individual who gave her life just a meal or two to share the good news with someone who had never heard of Christ. And as you listen to this video, I want you to look for two things. One is this beautiful story that God is saving lives now. People all over the globe. And He's doing it right here in Raleigh. And two, I want you to look at this with lenses of God wants to use me to be a part of touching lives for the glory of His name. Let's look at this together. Moses was a well-educated man in the land of Egypt, but when he left his country, he became a stranger wandering in the wilderness. He met God in a foreign land and was sent back to Egypt. When he returned to Egypt, he was able to do great things in the name of the Lord. International students are 21st century versions of Moses. While they are studying in the United States, we as believers must disciple these students so that they can be used by God to minister to their people. There are over 750,000 international students here in the United States, but studies have shown that over 70% of them are never invited into American home. However, when these students are welcomed into a Christian home, it makes a huge impact in their lives. I um, learned of an opportunity just to host an international student in my home for dinner. 
And so I decided to invite two uh, Chinese girls over for dinner on a Saturday night, and one was Jing. I was invited by John's family, so I went with another girl that we went to have dinner. I just asked lots of questions by accident. We brought about religion, the topic about religion. It was obvious that God was working in her life, and before the night was over, she had asked if she could go to church with us. She simply just shared the stories from Bible with me, and I made the decision to become a Christian. and to believe in Jesus. Jean did become a Christian as she uh, came to our church and learned about Christ and we shared with her. Uh, she accepted Christ and she was baptized and then I realized the importance of her growing and learning. And that's how she started the Experiencing God the study with We Two Girls. And after that study, like my life, I feel it just really changed and it's exciting. I just made myself available and invited them into my home. And then after that, I really sensed the Lord just directing every step of the way uh, to where we are now, where not only um, have I continued in discipling these girls, but I see them reaching out to their friends. Discipling international students is essential to spreading the gospel all around the world. You can become involved simply by sharing the gospel with genuine love educated them about Christ, and equipping them to take the gospel back to their people. Start discipling an international student today and be a burning bush for a 21st century Moses. So this is here in Raleigh. This is the SIT ministry that we are connected with at NC State campus. And for some of you, you're invested in other areas, but for some of you, this would be perfect for you to be able just to invite somebody to eat with you and then have the privilege of just to learn about their lives and them to learn about yours, which includes Jesus. And we would pray that God would use our body to touch the lives of people because it's too light a thing that the gospel stays to the Jews only. It must go to the ends of the earth. And the ends of the earth have come here. So if this is something you are interested in, we just want you to feel free to uh, text the number, um, put your name there, and uh, put Mission Me on there. And what we'll do is we will, the leaders of that will reach out to you and contact you with some more information about how you can get connected to something like that here in our city. But what's interesting is as you dive back into Isaiah 49, not only is it too light a thing, but in verse 7, he says that this servant is going to take the gospel to the ends of the earth as a light in a dark place, but it will happen through the path of suffering. Look at verse 7. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised, abhorred by the nation, the servant of rulers. It's setting in contrast to Cyrus once again. King Cyrus... He ruled and he got his conquering through political dominion, through advancement of political power. This servant will bring restoration and triumph to God's people by being a servant who takes the good news beyond the Jewish people to the nations, but it will be through the path of being hated by the nations and despised 
by those that he's around. Suffering, inconvenience, difficulty. And just as the servant's mission is our mission, so is the path that the servant took our path. Jesus' path for saving is going to be and was through suffering and it will be ours as well. Through difficulty. It won't be easy, bottom line. But, what we have is a confidence. Because look at the end of verse 7. He doesn't stop right there. He says, Kings shall see and arise, and princes, they shall prostrate themselves because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. God will accomplish His purpose because He is faithful. And even though it's a picture through suffering, He will still bring it about to where He's turning kings to do what He wishes they would do. So, some of this, and I know what it's like as I was preparing, I felt it, and I know as a listener it's that way as well. This seems really good, really kind of big, but you're really right here. You're right here with, I'm overwhelmed by work, my kids are not obedient, my marriage seems a little tense, I'm overwhelmed by studies, finances are really difficult. I'm physically not feeling well. The list is long. And when we come and we cast our lives in the shadow of such a large, glorious, grand, global mercy mission, it feels like it doesn't even really apply to me because I'm such a wreck right here. That sounds really good for those who have it together. I don't have it together. Friends, That's why Jesus came. And this message right here is to help you in two ways. One is to know who that Savior is in the midst of your being a wreck so that you don't only look at your circumstances, but you begin to see how God is going to use your circumstances, your pain, your mess, your imperfection to use you as a part. Not the sole solution. That was Jesus but as a part of His mission to spread His name and to spread His mercy to the ends of the earth. Part of what this is is to say, yes, you are a mess. Jesus isn't. That's our hope. Not you being all fixed. He's fixed. You trust in Him and God's going to use every bit of your dysfunction for the glory of His name. Every bit of it. And so as we dive into Isaiah 49, He not only sent His Son for His namesake and for all peoples, but He sent it so that you will not be forgotten. You are remembered. You are fought for. You are loved. He is with you. And this is what the people of Israel were bringing into question. Look at verse 8. Thus says the Lord, In a time of favor, I have answered you. In a day of salvation, I have helped you. This actually is quoted in 2 Corinthians chapter 6 by Paul, saying that we are on the same mission of bringing the salvation of God to people in the here and now. But let's just keep going, because what this passage begins to emphasize is who God is for you while you take that message. So who is God for you? Verse 8, I will keep you, servant. I will give you as a covenant to the people and establish the land to apportion the desolate heritage, heritages. And I will say to the prisoner, come out. 
So I will use you to say to the prisoner, come out. And now all of a sudden we are thrust into the middle of a prison. We're thrust into the imagery of shackles. Behind closed, locked, barred doors, however you think of it. Think about it like this. Like, picture yourself or picture of prisoners in World War II under the German Reich. And as these prisoners are there in these concentration camps, they are there not because they have done wrong, they are there because they are hated because of racism and all this gross supremacy talk. And so they are unjustly imprisoned, right? So we who are fighting for justice would believe it's a just thing for them to have a prison break, right? You don't want prison breaks when someone's there and they're guilty. But this is the kind of break that you want to happen. You want liberation. You want to be set free because the ones who are wrong are the captors, not the captives. And so picture this, that there's one on the inside. There's one prisoner who has special resources and special intel. And it'll be through that one that the entire prison will find escape and will be set free. Through that one, escape will be given to the, to the many. And this is the picture that is being set forth here. Because when they escape, make sure you understand the conditions in the prison so that you understand the conditions outside of the prison. In concentration camps, they were starved. They were emaciated. They were just skin and bones. They were beaten. They were mistreated. They were products of slavery. Many were killed. But now to find that they are brought out, they won't hunger like they hungered. They will not be beaten by their master, by the one who is over them. They will be liberated and set free. This is the image that's used in Isaiah. Look at it. Saying to the prisoners, come out. Verse 9. To those who are in darkness appear, they shall feed along the ways. On all the bare heights shall be their pasture. What look to be barren lands. When you're behind the walls of that concentration camp, all you see is barrenness. But when you escape and are brought out and set free, you see pasture. You see opportunity. You see hope. You see liberation. So all the barrenness is now brought into freedom. And look at verse 10. They shall not hunger or thirst. Neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them. For he who has pity on them will lead them and by springs of water will guide them. The people of Israel will be brought out and set free. And their story is like a movie. And Israel is the supporting cast. And Jesus is the hero. Israel's brought out. They're set free. They're released. And it's meant to be a picture of God's end time salvation. That at the end, He will restore this entire new heavens and the new earth. And He most especially will restore the human soul. The soul needs to be set free out of captivity. And this is why the author of Revelation quotes this very verse when he quotes the end of all things in Revelation 7. We will never hunger again. We will never thirst again. What was a scorched place will be a place springing with wells of water. 
And as a people of every nation, tribe, and tongue, we will bow before our great God and shout praises to him that we have been delivered. And that's what happens in verse 13. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exult, O earth. Break forth, O mountains, into singing. For the Lord has comforted His people and will have compassion on the afflicted. He will bring them out. However, I've talked to many people who have been kind of released from prison before. And when you serve in prison, you learn a new way of life. There's a sense it's a new culture, it's a new setting. Authorities are different, you know, how you make money is different, what your daily tasks are are different. And then when you get out, especially if you've been in for 20, 30 years, when you get out, although you're free, you've got to relook at life. Things have changed. And you realize that some things you took for granted while you were in, now your freedom means, okay, yeah, you've got responsibility, but that means I've got to do something. I've got, I've got to figure out how to manage my life. And you realize that sometimes, even outside of prison, people are as bad as those maybe who might have been in there that you were wanting to get away from. And the people of Israel are experiencing something like this. They've been set free from such awful slavery. And yet, now that they're free, they still see that they suffer. They struggle. They feel alone. And they too are stuck in all the mess of their life, just like you and I are. And I want you to hear what God speaks to them in this moment. Verse 15, or 14. But Zion, that's another word for Israel, but Zion said, The Lord has forgotten me, forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. This is how they feel. They feel forsaken, abandoned, rejected, not remembered. Have you felt that way? Have you felt that way? When you're at the end of yourself, you feel as if God's not paying attention to your trial. You hurt. He's not paying attention to the fact that you are physically sick and hurting. It feels as if you have been forsaken and rejected and left alone to fend for yourself and to kind of figure it out on your own. This is how Israel was laboring. And yet, look at what he says. Verse 15. Can a woman forget her nursing child? It's this sense of a mom who has cared enough about a, a child not only to bring it about and to keep it alive, but to want to feed it and to care for this child. And you think about this mom just caring for this child and you think, having gone through all of that and nursing and nurturing this child, there's no way this mom's going to forget this child. No way. After living that much life, that much trauma, you're not going to forget this child. And yet, God says... Even some moms forget. Even some moms forget their children. Even some moms abandon their children. But I will not forget you. That's the closest earthly relationship that might even get close to my intimate love for you, but even that falls short because I won't forget you. I will not forget you. And verse 16 says, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. He's begging you to look at his hands as proof of his love for you. Where might we see that? 
When Isaiah 49 goes to Isaiah 53 and the servant is hanging, he suffers on our behalf to prove his love. He was forsaken, Psalm 22, so that you might not be forsaken. He was rejected by men and by the Father so that you would not be rejected. He ushered Himself to be forgotten so that you would never be forgotten. The servant has done it all so that you have great hope as you stare square into your trials. You are not alone. And many of you know what it's like to be rejected. You've poured into people. You've loved people. And they have only turned their back on you. And what do you do? When that happens, you begin to ball up. You begin to close up. You begin to hide away. Because you've been hurt. Because people have rejected you. Friends, people will reject you, but God will never reject you. And so He calls out that we must trust Him and therefore we cannot stop loving others. We must continue, even if they reject and hurt us, we must continue to follow the mission that our Savior followed because if He would have quit, we would be left alone. But He didn't quit and we're not alone. Therefore, we have a message to take to the ends of the earth. You will not be rejected. And as we heard a message about this, my wife loves art and she drew it on a piece of paper and I just wanted to put it up because maybe seeing it a little differently might etch it into your brain. Etch this into your brain. He was forgotten so that He will always remember us. He was alone so that I will never be. He was rejected so that God would receive us. This is the Gospel message. And so, now you and I who live in mess, He's saying, that's okay. I walk the mess for you. You will never be alone. And now your life and your mess has meaning. It has purpose. That He will use you as a small piece of the puzzle to take His glory and His fame to the ends of the earth. That might mean sharing with a member of this church. It might mean sharing with a neighbor. It could be sharing with international students. It could be you going and investing your life overseas where people have never heard of the good news of Christ. But I promise you this. Part of your purpose is connecting your life to spreading His glory to reaching the people that have never heard. And so He lays out for us you will not be alone. You will not be forgotten. And I will continue to spread my name. And so you just hear promises like in verse 23. Then you will know that I am the Lord. Those who wait for me shall not be put to shame. And you hear the promise at the end of verse 26. Then all flesh shall know that I am the Lord your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Let's live in such a way that we want people to be able to see the beauty of the Savior through us, through our waiting, through our fighting through our loneliness, through our sharing about how God has comforted us so that people would see that He is the Savior and He is the Redeemer of our lives. Let's pray. Father, I love You and I just ask that just as You 
in Isaiah 49 show this picture of you bringing the Jewish people from afar and gathering them into their land. So it is a picture of our lives that you will deliver us out of bondage and slavery and sin. And as you deliver us, you will accomplish your great purpose. You will set us free and you will use us just like you use the servant in the sense that you will declare your glory to the ends of the earth. Spread your knowledge and fame through our lives. May we not settle for the clanging small symbols of human praise or for the the quick immediate satisfaction that people or things might give us. But may we repent. Strive to be worshipers of you and just trust that you are going to use our lives to touch someone else's that we might see and experience the joy of people being changed for Christ's sake. So Lord, we ask for your presence right now that you would strengthen us and encourage us and help us know how to respond in this moment. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.